Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, where apparently there are worrying new variants emerging almost day... Oh no, that's something else. Here on the Culture File Weekly, we're thinking instead about the work of art in the age of cryptocurrency. Maurice Gohan remembers her sparkling lost future as a child star. Artist Emma McKegney thinks that we might all benefit from a lesson in harvesting clay. And Rob Long has an eye on the chocolatey goodness weighing down the crafts services table on the average film set. But first, there's something I need to ask you. Do you have a large holding of Bitcoin or Ethereum or other cryptocurrency burning a hole in your wallet? Yeah, me neither. But it's a problem in some parts, and the currently favoured manner of dealing with such excess spondulics is to buy digital art, everything from Instagram posts to virtual cats. But buying digital art, which is easily reproducible and widely available, is rather different from buying unique art to hang on your wall. Notably, you're unlikely to get anything to hang on your wall. Instead, you'll end up with a non-fungible token or NFT. Culture File sent a Zoom invite to our digital soothsayer, Virginia Tech's Professor Ashlyn Kelleher, for a briefing and a most likely short-sighted titter about the latest art and money hookup. Of all the nebulous things that have come down our interwebs, this seems one of the most nebulous, and yet there's a lot of money involved. What's happening there, Ashley? Well, it might be nebulous, but maybe it's kind of inevitable in a pandemic that people begin to think, well, what could I spend my hard-earned money on now that I can't go out and about and buy Rolexes and that? Or maybe I need to, like, freshen up my art collection. So basically, these NFTs, as you say, stand for non-fungible tokens, are a form of... Encrypted smart contracts, you can imagine. It could be a poem, it could be a uh, an image, a small little video that's encrypted and then attached to it is a unique digital signature that tells you, know, tells you that you're the owner of this particular bitmap or this particular video of LeBron dunking. And so it seems very, very odd, but this is a new form of digital art, which is all about kind of the provenance being about you own this thing and nobody else can have it, which is the fungible part. Because unlike typical Bitcoins, which are all identical and identical in value, here the this form of art is a different play on the idea of how value is assigned to something that is unique and also through deliberate scarcity is something, a commodity that people might desire. Encrypting this into a digital contract, it makes it this is the one. You are the one who has, you know, the equivalent might be in the real world, the Banksy on the side of your house. Or you are the one that has the signed urinal. It's a, you have the Duchamp, not something else. The idea that's a little strange in this is that you can purchase these art pieces. And it's almost like having your art and storing it in a warehouse. What you can really show is just that you have this contract. You're not necessarily displaying the artwork itself. And a lot of it is very much about speculation. So the same way that uh, you might be interested in purchasing sneakers, very expensive sneakers on StockX or something like that, not ever for the purpose of wearing them or even taking them out of the box, but rather because you can get them when it, you know, and the, the word is when they drop. Okay, so this kind of arbitrary time when all of a sudden, boom, these things become available online. If you get in there quickly enough and manage to get them at that moment, then these things escalate in value really, really quickly and you can begin to trade them almost immediately. This makes sense, perhaps, if you're thinking about something physical and tangible like a, a, a sneaker. 
but it becomes a little odd in some ways when you're like, it's just this form of, and this, some of this artwork is uh, very kind of derivative of early computer memes. So these are very bitmap type images that people are paying, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for. The Nyan Cat was recently sold at auction, and that must be, that was sort of authorised by the original creator of this meme. What you end up with, the only unique thing you end up with is kind of like the receipt, because the the image of the cat flying through space with a rainbow coming out the backside, that's still going to be everywhere on the internet and freely reproducible by everybody. But if you are the owner of it, what you own uniquely is just the receipt as it were exactly i mean or even like the idea of like that you own something that is readily available elsewhere like one of the companies that has been involved in this is the group dapper labs and they have actually uh collaborated with the nba here in the united states to help people sell and purchase really short clips sometimes random but kind of short clips from basketball games so you can imagine these as kind of like video trading cards which is kind of amusing in some ways, but that people such as Mark Cuban, who's like a, an owner of the Dallas Mavericks and kind of one of these big venture capitalist, uh, loud, shouty voices here, he's begun to purchase some of these and kind of amp them up a little bit through social media. But the idea that you might pay, you know, $200,000 for a four-second um, video clip of somebody dunking a basketball that's readily available on YouTube as well but because it's wrapped up in this contract and as you say you have the receipt saying that this this is mine and that this has actual value and it's maybe it's no different from things like the tulip craze or people with the beanie bags or back in my day it was all about fancy paper that just people just arbitrarily decide that that is something that's valuable and desirable and that I want it and maybe what we're seeing here is a convergence of all sorts of idiocy. I'm fascinated about how this interfaces with Walter Benjamin, and I know you're going to be able to tell me about this. There was a lot of discussion about what was a unique work of art, what qualities did it have, authenticity, that made it special, and what kind of effect the fact that you could reproduce it infinitely would have on its its sense of value, its aura. And it seems that this is um, a kind of technologically enabled way to try and add back authenticity or aura, particularly when used in the art world? I think it's a play in some ways on the art world as well, saying like we don't need these curators, we don't need these galleries, we don't need all these um, uh, critics telling us what is valuable, explaining this to us. It doesn't matter. I just got it because it dropped and I happened to be there and I clicked on it and I don't even know what I have. I don't even care what the actual artwork is. I just know that I have it and somebody else doesn't. And if they want it, they're going to have to pay an astronomical some. So it is this very strange speculative gaming in some ways. And I think we recently saw like with the GameStop idea of people being like, ha, I'm going to show it to these big traders on their algorithmic craziness and in terms of bringing stock prices up and down. And we're going to show it to the man by a group of people on social media getting together to, you know, to do something like this. This is the type of thing that I can imagine the KLF back in the day, going, they would be really good at this, right? You know, they like to like burn a million pounds. I'm like, well, if they could generate kitties and make a ton of little money off that and all the same while poking fun at you know these kind of these morons who are purchasing this with the hope that it might be something meaningful perhaps that the joke is on them who are these morons then are they the same people who are involved in wall street bets as you're saying the the kind of gamification of of stock trading it seems like a lot of it is coming from the folks who really made bank early on in the cryptocurrency game 
right? So their, over time, their investments and the types of either the Bitcoin or the Ethereum they have are extremely valuable right now. So the idea is, well, what do you do with that, particularly as it fluctuates? Do you need to kind of create a bank, a database essentially of things that could potentially be uh, worth something also in, in terms of hard cash? So you are seeing some of these early kind of cryptocurrency folks beginning to play around in this market and talking about, oh, well, I bought some art earlier on and now I'm kind of getting rid of it to turn it into actual cash. It's almost like this is a new game for them to play. And because they have all this all this cryptocurrency, they need to do something with it. Christie's and Sotheby's are both getting into this market. Right now, there's a very large auction on for one of the kind of the big cheeses in this world, a kind of a graphic designer from South Carolina here called Beeple. And he has a piece of artwork that is up for sale, up for auction right now. And I just looked at it last night and it's at kind of currently at $3 million. Clearly, there is growth in the idea of being a real artist that can make real money with this as well. The old dreams die hard. Professor Ashling Kelleher from her Zoom room in Virginia there on the rise of NFTs. And next, the once great hope of Irish speech and drama, Marie Scohan. Once upon a time, she was quite a big deal at the Fesh. Quite a big deal. But things change, love fades. And did you know the Fesh is online this year? I do not respect the craft of acting. I don't even really consider it a craft. Because a child can do it really well. And you know what else a child can do really well? Eat their own snot and believe in the tooth fairy. I mean, really, how hard can something be if a seven-year-old can master it? I would not trust a seven-year-old plumber or a seven-year-old accountant. The only legal job a seven-year-old can get is acting, which must prove that it's not really a proper job. I do speak with a certain level of resentment, though, because I am a failed child thespian. I cut my teeth in fashes, where kids would recite poems to a sports hall of parents in daylight, and a panel of stony-faced judges decided if they were special or losers. I won every single one in the Dundrum Ratdown district from ages five to nine. I delivered each poem with a smile on my face over-enunciating each word, and was rewarded with gold year after year. I was the Shirley Temple of South Dublin. No one could touch me. I was the LeBron James of reciting poems. Then, when I was ten, I came second. The girl who won used her hands while reciting her poem, which is a no-no-no in the fesh scene. It's akin to taking a brown paper envelope if you're a politician. I was robbed. I cried the whole car ride home. But, but, she used her hands. And I've never trusted a word since. I knew they were rigged. When they announced her as the winner, it was like when the Oscars announced La La Land as best picture. But they quickly realised their mistake. We lost, by the way, but, you know. I gave it to the true winner, Moonlight. There's a mistake. I was the Moonlight of Feshes. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Moonlight won. But my award mix-up was never rectified. This is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong I had thing. to just live with the injustice of it all. This is not a joke. But Moonlight I didn't let my award snub hold me back from acting. I gave my heart and soul to every Christmas play in my speech and drama class. I was Goldilocks in Goldilocks and the Three Bears. I was Billy, 
Billy Goat's Gruff. I was versatile, you know. I could be Matthew McConaughey in How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. And I could be him in Dallas Buyers Club. The world was my oyster. But I wanted more. The local sports halls at Christmas wasn't enough for me. I knew the bright lights of Hollywood were beckoning me. Then I auditioned for this film when I was 11 called Evelyn. I got down to the last few girls and for the final stage, I had to audition in front of the director. I was so pumped. I memorized all my lines. Because of my time in the trenches of feshes, that was easy for me to do. I showed up to my audition in my favorite wine cord suit and a twinkle in my eye. The man reading lines to me was this old guy, at least 40, and he kept going off script. He kept saying things that weren't on the page. I looked over at the director and gave a concerned look. This man must have dementia. Surely they'll see how unprofessional he's being and he'll be ushered away. But that didn't happen. Is this girl from speech and drama classes? The director asked the producer. And I stood up, tall, delighted he could see I wasn't an amateur. More like all speech, no drama, he barked and laughed. I felt my whole body swallow into itself. My stomach turned. Not wanting to appear uncivilised, I gracefully bowed and exited the room. And then in the safety of my mother's car, I cried and fumed. Repeating those words, he said. More like, more, more like he said I was more speechless drama, I wailed. And my mum tut tut tutted from the driver's seat. Did you not see Colin Farrell walk in? He'd a shaved head, but it was definitely him. If only you'd been more natural. Acting did not respect me. It swallowed me into its beautiful, exciting mouth, then spit me back out again. So, in turn, I don't respect acting. Any idiot can act. I tell anyone who'll listen, knowing that I was the only idiot they rejected. How's that for drama? gotten there who's clearly over it and she'll be back in a fortnight's time but you can find all her previous thoughts all of them on the culture files soundcloud page covid clay is the title of artist emma mckegney's lockdown project not an exhibition but a series of online classes covering the artist's favorite material from how to harvest clay safely in your five kilometers to how to refine what you find and even how to fire it in an old washing machine but this is about more than handicrafts as emma mckegney told culture files ornia gallagher it's also about coming to know the ground on which we stand I moved back from Canada in the middle of all of the hecticness like end of March and I was in lockdown in Sligo and for the first time in ages had nothing to do so I knew I had this 
kind of collected skill from collecting local clay for my undergrad project and I had all this like video footage from it so I decided I'd put it together into a three-part kind of online class that I could just leave on my website I just wanted people to if they used it if they got any interest from it to donate a little bit of money to the abolish direct provision campaign let's say if you see like a cliff face that you think is clay like you can't just go and dig into it because you're going to cause a problem you're going to cause an overhang which will cause like a cliff face to collapse so I'm kind of the first thing I say straight off the bat is you have to be careful with this you can't just like dig away at any piece of land yeah clay is really everywhere so it's actually quite easy to come across especially if you know you're doing work on your house and you've dug into the ground a bit a lot of the times in Ireland you'll find clay so it's actually a lot easier to come by than maybe people would think and then more about how to extract clay how to extract it safely and then I go into the details of how to actually when you get like a lump of what looks like high content clay material out of the ground how to actually purify it so you can actually turn it into a ball of clay that you can do something with and when you've gotten your clay you've made a little bit out of it You can actually usually fire it at home. Clay is the smallest thing that rock minerals break down into. So it's it's usually where there's been a lot of movement. So you'll find it in um, cliffs. So it's usually when things have kind of moved over a really long period of time. But you'll also find it then in like gardens. A lot of people around Dublin who maybe have tried to grow food have noticed that there's a lot of clay content in their soil. Like my mum's always, you know, pulling her hair out because <laughs> she can't grow anything in the garden because there's so much clay in the soil. And that just depends where you are. What you'll probably find if you go looking is like a terracotta clay. So it'll be like a very rich looking brown colour. And then when you fire it, it'll go like a bright red. So that's like kind of your natural terracotta colour. It depends what minerals are part of it. But it's usually that would be the most common. And then, yeah, there might be a darker clay getting coloured from the bog. Or it's a massive world of chemistry, (laughs) clay and glazing and stuff. And I have only scratched the surface. But all the different clays depend on kind of what minerals are within it. I'm in the Bear Peninsula in Cork at the moment. And what I've noticed in the soil and the rocks is that they're quite green. I think there's a lot of copper in the water and then the earth. So does that translate then into the clay? Yeah, yeah. So the clay I had was had a high iron content. So that's why it went like a bright red. But yeah, if you had a lot of copper, it would probably go a kind of greeny color when you fired it. But it's kind of a world of mystery, especially when you're getting it from the ground and you don't know its whole content. Um, once you fire it, you'll get a better idea of what the minerals actually are, depending on what colors they are. Since you're studying the kind of Irish historical end of things now, have you found the two are informing each other? So you might learn more about the land by exploring the clay. The clay project that I started in my BA, so that would have been like finishing 2017, I kind of moved that forward towards my solo show about kind of the formation of rocks. And I had this one rock that I found that had a, a beautiful design aesthetic even though it was you know a found rock so it's, it's kind of more about the interaction of design 
and people and natural aesthetics and that has kind of tied into this idea of animism which is this old way of describing how and this is in inverted commas primitive cultures would have dealt with land and their surroundings so you know indigenous cultures would have seen a mountain as having a soul or a river as having a soul and in the late 1800s they would have called this like primitive and animistic whereas that word animistic is now being reclaimed and saying look this is actually a better way of looking at our surroundings it's a way of thinking that I think kind of traces back to that for me of you know respecting land but being able to kind of use and extract from it in a way that's safe. These classes actually work better online it's not like classes that have just moved online for COVID they actually work well because people aren't gathered in the one place and aren't extracting the same clay and therefore aren't putting pressure on the land. Yeah, I just didn't want to bring like 10 or 20 people down to one place and extract a load of clay. Like I wouldn't have been very comfortable with doing that. So I think it is better if people find it, you know, in their local area and their garden and extract it safely. And it's something that I really stress in it. I always try and only take as much as in relation to kind of your body. So like what you can carry, like the second you start bringing, I don't know, a big extracting machine, then it's turning into something a little bit more damaging. I guess it also means that people get to learn something about their own immediate landscape if they're just extracting from around them instead of going somewhere to learn about it. Yeah, exactly. I think it's the kind of thing like when you start looking you'll you'll see it and even people who have a garden, you'll find it in weird places in your garden and you know it might take a, a while to extract if it has a lot of soil in it. Or it could be something, yeah, you're out walking and you see on the riverbed there's, you know, a lump of clay. You know, you get an understanding of your materials that you use as an artist if you get back to the actual source of it. And then it inspires you in different ways. You know, it kind of, it gives you a deeper understanding and it gives you a deeper respect because you see how much work actually goes into turning this into something you can use. Emma McKegney there talking to Anya Gallagher and Emma's COVID clay course is online at emmamckegney.com forward slash COVID clay. Plentiful egg sandwiches and really gooey souffles are possibly not the most discussed aspects of film and television production, but according to our correspondent from the storytelling industrial complex, such treats often make the difference on set between a good working environment and all hell breaking loose, as Rob Long explains. This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. The best way to give somebody bad news is you first give them something to eat. And that's basically the idea behind what we in Hollywood call craft services, otherwise known to newcomers to the business as, holy moly, look at that huge table of snacks. And it's, well, it's it's what it is. It's a huge table of snacks, originally designed to feed water and otherwise satisfy the between-meal cravings of the various craft guilds that make show business work. 
following the principle that hungry people are angry people and that angry, hungry people are the last people you want handling six-ton pieces of equipment and million-dollar movie sets and wires with 18 zillion volts of electricity crackling through them, inches from the neck and face of America's beloved TV and film stars. Well, providing unlimited free sugary carbohydrates, well, that feels like a bargain. But that simple calculation has morphed over time to include the need to placate everyone involved in a film or TV production. I had a show on the air years ago that involved a lot of complicated location filming. So we had weather trouble and airplane noise trouble and crowd control trouble and all sorts of trouble that could only really be solved, it turned out, by an enterprising craft service guy passing out a tray of mini egg salad sandwiches at 10 o'clock in the morning. Now, Egg salad doesn't solve production problems, of course, but it's soothing and eggy and pleasantly bland, and it doesn't take much energy to chew, so eating one, or in my case, eating a fistful, is a little like sucking on a mayonnaise pacifier. You just forget what you're supposed to be upset about. I know of a certain major television showrunner who had the craft service person whip up at the end of a long shoot mini chocolate souffles. And as they were shooting pickup shots and retakes, which is always a tedious process, and at the end of a long shoot, it's the time when tempers are short and people unravel, well, the showrunner would sit in a director's chair, face and lips smeared with gooey chocolate, staring slack-jawed and glassy-eyed at the monitors, They're just mini souffles, the showrunner would say, as if that somehow made it less elaborate. But the truth was, they weren't mini at all. They were served in one-quart ramekins with a double big spoon, like a big chocolate pacifier. The entire crew was narcotized by chocolatey goo, placated enough to get through the late hours without killing each other. A peaceful and happy set for the price of a 100 chocolate souffles and a certain amount of type 2 diabetes. Now, I know a former network president who let it be known that he wouldn't be offended if, during the shooting of the many, many pilot episodes he attended during pilot selling season, if a bottle of his preferred Cabernet was available to sip on in the green room as he watched the proceedings on a monitor. So, of course, the studio trying to sell the pilot series made sure that there was a bottle in the green room. And so the next studio, also vying for the same slot on that network schedule, put out two bottles. It escalated into a half case until eventually we were asking the production assistant to take a case directly to the network executive's car when he arrived and, of course, any leftover bottles after the shoot. Now, a network executive isn't really a member of a Hollywood craft guild in any sense of the term, but the idea of craft services, it's all about soothing, easing tempers, making difficult situations go better with chocolate and wine and salty snacks. And then, of course, one day you discover that you need a new belt. This has happened on every show or film set I've ever been on. Eventually, somebody gets all up in the craft service table, somebody with clout and an obsession with health, and suddenly the chips and M&Ms and double-stuff Oreos get replaced by the good stuff, the healthy stuff, by rice cakes and carrot sticks and power bars and things with carob and antioxidants. And then suddenly people start to lose a little of that extra flab. They have more energy and things happen faster. Trouser buttons meet and button without strain or curses. But then before you know it, 
the entire production is at each other's throats. The network is feuding with the studio. The studio is trying to fire the producer. The craft guilds, which are the whole reason we have craft services in the first place, end up cranky and hungry and maybe a little careless with the 80-pound lights dangling above the head of the million-dollar star. And that is when the egg salad comes back with the ice cream bars and the cookies. Except now, as each studio and union sorts out the new post and, frankly, current COVID rules, one thing is certain, there will be no craft services tables anywhere. Food spreads are what is known in the epidemic trade as vectors. So they're banned for the near future. And that means some very grumpy, very hungry ill-tempered production sets and sound stages, and a lot of unhappy feuding. In other words, if you're on a set in the next few months, keep your eyes open for crackling electric wires and look out for falling objects. And that's it for this week. Next week, we go on safari. For Martini Shot, this is Rob Long. COVID-19, it's coming for your snacks. And Rob's sobering martini shot brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more swings and roundabouts next Saturday. And your daily Culture File is nestling in Classic Drive, Mondays to Friday at 6.10pm. Until then, bye now.